Hello. Welcome to The Plot Thickens with me, Ellie Griffiths. You might know me as the author of the Dr Ruth Galloway books and the Brighton Mysteries. This is a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of crime writing. From what it's really like to be a published author, to the intricacies of our research, and just how we think up those killer twists. Each episode, I'm welcoming an expert guest to lift the curtain on everything you want to know about the world of crime fiction. For those of you who've read my Ruth Galloway books, there'll be lots of behind-the-scenes details on the characters, settings and history. But if you haven't come to them yet, we'll make sure to flag any spoilers and there'll still be plenty to enjoy. I've been very lucky to have had the same editor for all my Ellie Griffiths books and especially lucky that that editor is the wonderful Jane Wood. Here we talk about where it all began for the Dr Ruth Galloway mysteries. Well, today I have a really special guest. I'm really lucky that all my Ellie Griffiths books have been edited by the same person, which is really unusual, actually, in publishing. Um, But I'm especially lucky because that person is the wonderful Jane Wood. And Jane's here with me in the studio today. And we're going to talk about when it all started, really. Um, So, Jane, can you remember when we first met? I can, vividly. It was in summer and you were wearing a pink top. And it would have been, I think, late... 2007 um, and I hadn't been at Quirkus very long and um, I read your I read your manuscript and I loved it I'll say a bit later what I loved about it but we met see if we're going to like each other because by then I knew I was going to be offering I think I already had offered and you came to London from Brighton and we had a lovely coffee and we had a chat and in those days we were Quirkus was a little publisher in a townhouse in Bloomsbury, um, which was very oh, kind I of like that it was so it was great, wasn't it? There were kind of boxes of books everywhere, it was chaotic. We had a few mice too, that was a bit of a problem. But it was kind of old fashioned publishing and it was rather lovely. So we met and had a coffee and we talked about your life and and the book and your name and all, all sorts of different things. And you told me you had two ten year old twins, a boy and a girl, and I thought how amazing. Also, you were still working at that point, that you managed to find the time to write a novel um, alongside all of that. I'm always really impressed by people like you, Jane, who remember what people were wearing. <laughs> My sister's like that. And, I'm, and of course, you're so stylish. Maybe that's why. But I, I don't exactly remember what we were wearing. But actually, I do remember that pink top. And mm. I do remember we had a coffee and it was somewhere in central London. And I just remember at some point in the conversation, um, it came up that you'd edited Elizabeth Jane Howard, who... Is an absolute hero of mine. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is Elizabeth Jane Howard's editor. <laughs> and, and she likes my book. Yeah, I was very lucky to be her editor um, for the Catholic Chronicles and a few other novels. And, uh, yeah, it was wonderful. So um, do we, we share similar tastes. We do, definitely. And that was such a wonderful thing. And um, we talked about the name, didn't we? Because I had already written, you know, four books under my own name, my real name, which is Domenica de Rosa. And then I, I wrote The Crossing Places and because it was crime, my, my agent, who was then Tiflionis, uh, said, oh, you need a crime name. So my grandmother had been Ellen Griffiths. So I think I submitted the manuscript under E.G. Griffiths. Is that yes, right? that's right. I remember you submitted under E.G. Griffiths. And there were a few people there using initials to kind of, in a way, just sort of disguise gender. So, you know, it wasn't obvious that the writer was a man or a woman. Um, and I thought that the broadest appeal of your books would be to women readers. Yes. And I thought that E.G. Griffith sounded a teeny bit dry and it might be nice to have a slightly more friendly 
sounding name. And so I think between us, we came up with Ellie. We decided to spell Ellie with a Y rather than a than an IE on the end because it would kind of look better on the cover. Yes. And we went with Ellie Griffiths at that point. It's funny, I remember that because my grandmother had been Ellen, that's right, Ellen Griffiths, and we talked about Ellen and it became Ellie at some point. And and I think, you know, just sort of almost arbitrarily we said oh, Ellie with a Y, but actually the way the books are now, um, there's there's the Ellie fits between the G and the F of Griffiths. So it's actually really neat, isn't it? It's very neat because I've designed this lovely logo for your name. It, it really works so much better with the Y, so I'm glad we I'm glad we went we went for that. And I've got a copy of the first edition of The Crossing Places, the first novel in the series, with me here. And I remember that you had to and it's signed by you, because it's my first edition copy, I asked you to sign. And it's got your slightly <laughs> shaky looking Ellie, <laughs> Ellie Griffiths the, signature on it. It was the first time I'd ever been asked to sign Ellie Griffiths. And I remember um you said uh, you know, will you sign it for me? And of course I've signed now every one of my first editions and and you just showed it to me just now and uh, it's, it's it's a very shaky Ellie Griffiths and I remember even the first few years every time I signed Ellie Griffiths because it's not my real name you know I spent my childhood practicing Domenica de Rosa as a signature and it was beautiful with big D and the big R um, and Ellie Griffiths took a bit of time and I had to literally say to myself Ellie Griffiths Ellie Griffiths Ellie Griffiths and I was signing it so no wonder it's a bit shaky but the book is if I could describe it it's it's rather beautiful but um, it's got a sort of I don't know grey blue sort of sand cover with some footprints in them and it says Ellie Griffiths in capital so it's not my sort of cosy Ellie Griffiths you've got now and it has the crossing places almost looks like it could be written in blood and the strap plan is beware the path between life and death which is very cool but it it's quite different from my books now isn't it it's quite different from the look we have for you now which we redesigned go about mm, five six years ago I think we did a lot of research and changed your look um, in the early books. Not this one, but for quite a long time, we always had a figure on the cover. Yes. And then we stopped putting a figure on the cover. And we designed a lovely logo for your name, which we've used across all the books. But this, I think, did reflect the book because there was all that wonderful stuff about the henge and the marshes. And, and in fact, one of the very first things that sort of on the very first page, descriptions of the salt marsh... I mean, you know, the, the things that I fell in love with about your books immediately was that really, really strong sense of place, the North Norfolk setting, the wild setting, the salt marsh. Um, and then I think the next thing I fell in love with was Ruth, your main character, who had chosen to live in this wild place, kind of away from and away from civilization. I remember that her mother, the character of her mother, does not approve at all of her little cottage on the short no, marsh no. where she's living on her own. So I fell in love with that. And then, of course, there's there's Nelson. And I do sometimes, well, I love to talk about Nelson and Ruth, but um, love to talk to you more about where the character of Ruth came from in your mind and then the character of Nelson. Should we talk about Ruth first because she's such a great character? Oh, thank you. And I'm, I did want to say, what did you love about my book? So I'm <laughs> glad you said that without me having to ask that in a needy way because you know how needy authors can be. Well, Ruth it is, you know, I, I, I've grown to love Ruth really, but she did appear in quite a sort of... Um, 
surprising way, in like a sudden way, which hasn't always happened with all my characters. And what happened was I was walking across Titchwell Marsh in North Norfolk. You were saying the books are set in North Norfolk with my husband, Andy, who is an archaeologist. And Andy um, happened to say that archaeologists um, think that prehistoric people thought that marshland is sacred because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between. They think of it as a bridge to the afterlife. Neither land nor sea, neither life nor death. The old liminal zone between life and death, really. And that's why you find bodies buried there, so-called bog bodies. You know, those they, they were probably buried there for that reason, because it was a boundary between life and death. Yeah. And as soon as he said this, and, you know, he was um, given to sort of putting this a little bit... He, he retrained as an archaeologist from, from, from bit working in the city. Um, so uh, he was given to sort of giving us these bits of information. But as soon as he said that, something really clicked in my brain. And I did sort of see Ruth walking towards me out of the mist. Magic. Uh, you know, are you, are you irritated when your authors say things like that, Jane? No, with you, with you, I know I absolutely believe it. Told me this before and I absolutely believe it. It is a funny thing, isn't it? Because sometimes, you know, when you're creating a character, you think, OK, I'm going to have a character. You sort of brainstorm it with yourself, don't you? think, oh, how old is she? What are her parents like? You know, what does she like to read? You know, does she buy the big issue? Those sort of things. But with Ruth, she did just appear. And I thought I knew exactly who she was, you know, where she'd been to school, where she'd been to college, what sort of biscuits she liked, you know, literally everything about her. And it is, you know, really has only happened to me that once in that way. And I did know what she looked like, which isn't, again, I don't always see a face with the characters. Um, chatting with William Shaw, who's, who's another Quirkus author and a really good friend of both of ours, and he says that he never sees a face for any of his characters. And That's William, interesting. Yeah, isn't it? William's yeah. going to be a guest on here and I'm going to ask him about that. But yeah. with Ruth, I did I'll tell you something funny. I don't know if I've ever told you this bit. So... I thought I knew quite clearly what Ruth looked like. And that's why in the early pages of the books, you do get quite a, quite a description of her, like you know, her skin, her hair, her eyes, her smile. She has a lovely smile, but um, she doesn't know that about herself. So, uh, you know, that, that's quite unusual to have a sort of, for me, to have a sort of physical description like that. And it, after the book had been published and um, also the name just appeared, Ruth Galloway, I um, was watching an old episode of The Apprentice, and I thought possibly she looks a bit like Ruth Badger, who was who was a fabulous contestant, big fan of Ruth Badger. So I don't know whether her face, and that's why I thought Ruth. Obviously not consciously, otherwise I wouldn't have called her Ruth. And we also, I mean, when we were sort of flirting with who might possibly play Ruth, we thought, didn't we think of Ruth Jones? Yes. Ago? So there are a lot of Ruths featuring. In this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ruth story. Jones would be perfect and does look very much like, like my your Ruth. Idea yeah. of, of your Ruth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another well, Ruth. I loved her because I, I loved her kind of wry humour and she, her routine in the morning in that first novel, getting up, the turning on the Today programme, which I do, although the news <laughs> is so awful at the moment, sometimes I feel it's a bad, it's a bad idea, but getting up with the Today programme, looking after the cats, getting herself out, all that, you sort of waking up and starting the day with her, you sort of really feel you felt you knew her quite quickly. Because um, sometimes people say you shouldn't start a book with getting up. And, and starting the day. But as an editor, you, you don't, you're not put off by I'm it. I'm not put off by that, particularly not for the first novel. It's, you know, it's, I thought following that routine was a really, way, a really good way of introducing us to her. And then, obviously, then she meets Nelson. You have absolutely no idea at that point what's going to be happening between these two 
And going back and reading that first introduction to Nelson and now knowing Nelson through like 15 books, <laughs> um, it's really interesting to see how you'd sort of got him in that very first that very first scene when he appears with his dark gray hair and looking rather gruff and all of that. And I'd love to ask you where, you know, is he a combination of people you know? I remember at one time in the early in the early edits, I think I was trying to make you soften him a bit. Yes. And because uh, he could be quite harsh. And you resisted that. And you were completely right. <laughs> um but because in fact he is very tender-hearted, but it's deeply buried. Um, but where did he? Where did he come from? It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because he is somebody who, as you say, he does come from a variety of places. But again, he did seem to appear on the page, and I do remember writing that he seemed too big for the room, mm-hmm. and that's yep. kind of something I think about Nelson is that that he, even though you know physically he's he's not huge, I think he's quite tall. Um, but but he's. He just seems too big for the space and he seemed to really not fit in in the sort of academic background. Ruth works at a university and he just doesn't seem like the other academics. He looks sort of too serious and too grown up, she says. That's right, too grown up for the yeah. room. Yeah. Um, well, Nelson's from Blackpool and I, I originally, I, I knew there would be a kind of clash between Ruth and Nelson. You know, she's from the south, he's from the north, she's an academic, he's, he's a police officer. Um, so he had he had to be from somewhere that we, because I'm from Brighton, that we southern people call the north you know where that yeah. appears on on the on the motorway the north so i knew he would be from the north but um i chose blackpool because my brother-in-law's from blackpool so my brother-in-law mike is from blackpool and um that's been very useful because it's helped make you know nelson's background authentic so he ended up going to the same school as mike and and uh, uh playing for the same football team and um working as a lifeguard in the same pool but I have to say, he's not Mike. Um, I don't know if you've met Mike, Jane. You've met most of my family by yeah, now. I haven't met Mike. I don't I think Mike. you have. But, mm. I mean, he's great and he's lovely. But he would certainly call himself a new man. He's not afraid to wear pink. Uh, a bit like Clough now. He's not afraid to wear pink. So, I, I think, you know, I think Nelson would not, you know, he, he's, he's not Nelson. But so the background was there. Do you know, I think Nelson is quite like my dad. Ah, Right. Um and and I've thought elements of, of your dad. Yeah. Anyway. And yeah. and um sadly my my dad died before we met and he actually died before I had had a book published. Um so he was 50 when I was born and uh he died in 2002. So um and he was Italian. So in some ways you think that's not Nelson but he was a racing driver before the war. Mm. So Nelson drives too fast. Yeah. Yeah. And he was one of those people who is a great family man but could be quite brusque, could be quite sort of quick-tempered but also very soft-hearted underneath and really devoted to to his his wife and daughters, you know, although Nelson's devotion is a little tested. But but you he's know still devoted to them. He is still devoted to them. He's quite complicated and he's quite he's quite uh, conflicted in some ways and and uh Nelson like like my dad like me was brought up catholic and although um my dad was p- probably typical of a, a lot of italians in that he thought of himself as a very good catholic but never really went near a church or anywhere like that and i think nelson would say oh i i don't believe in any of that stuff but he does really yes and I yeah. think the Catholic guilt kind of gets to him. Gets to him, exactly. Do you, yeah. do you remember, did you make any notes about Ruth and Nelson? When you, can you remember what you wrote in the margin of that first? Gosh. Um, well, of course, I edited 
in an old-fashioned way, um, um, I would have probably sent you a manuscript, didn't I? With yes, write, with yes. writing all over yes. it. Yes. Um, I don't remember it needing an awful lot of editing. I think maybe there were a few plot points. I should have gone back actually and looked through my editorial notes, but I know they weren't. They weren't particularly long, and they weren't particularly complicated. It was probably a little about characters. Um, I mean, another character that people absolutely love, um, and you were taking quite a risk with putting him in to a crime novel, was Cathbad the Druid. Yes. And I, I mean, I really, I really liked him from the beginning. But I'd love to know where, you know, why you decided to put a druid in there. <laughs> yes, I mean, and it's funny, isn't it? Because when you reread that first book, he is sort of. Um, a suspect in that book mm. and, and he seems a bit dodgy at first and I do remember one of the things I do remember you saying was to bring in a bit more of Nelson's background early on because yes. I think I hadn't done that I think it I think we found that out later on and you're quite right because you know you should tell people up front you know not let them mm-hmm. sort of it wasn't uh, sort of find out later on that he was from Blackpool um, so yeah with why I had a druid in it was because the the archaeological bit of the plot is about a Bronze Age henge mm. in North Norfolk, and um, it, it really was a real henge. It was called sort of called Sea Henge, though I know the archaeologists don't like that word for it. So the, this wooden henge was found on the beach, and archaeologists came to excavate it, and they took the timbers away to examine them. And I did an event really, really recently, just a, a month or so ago, in Kings Lynn with Francis Pryor, who was yeah. one of the archaeologists involved in that, which was so interesting. Um, and so what happened when they took the henge, the henge timbers away, local druids protested. Yes. And when I read that, I thought, only in Norfolk would you have local <laughs> druids. You know, so I've got to have a druid in there. And um, Francis was quite interesting about this, actually. I asked him about it, and he said, actually, he had he personally had, had a pretty good relationship with the, with the druids who did come on site and did protest. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did, on behalf of the druids, leave offerings and things like that. But he said, the thing is, when you have wood, you have the chance to date something almost to the day. Yes. It's not like stone. Wood can be dated like that. So that's why they took the timbers away. But I'm sort of also in bit in sympathy with the idea that, you know, they, they were meant Stay to be there. Yeah. yeah. But wouldn't they, maybe they're very hard by then, but if they're left there, don't they have a better chance of surviving if they go to the museum? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they would so, disappear in the end yeah. if they were left in, in yeah, the... Yeah, they would rot. They would rot. And they sort of had rotted um, yeah. and become this sort of really fascinating, almost like soft, you know, yeah. strange yeah, sort of structure. Yeah. yeah. And But I suppose Cathbad would say that's what it's about, you know, time and tide, mm. death and destruction. Mm. So I knew I was going to have a druid character. I didn't know that he'd become the Cathbad who is now central character, isn't he, in exactly. the books? Exactly. Central character in the books and... Um, in some ways, has gone more legit. Yes, yes, he has. I don't... (laughs) He's older. Yes, he has. He's certainly sort of... I don't think he's mellowed. And actually, he plays a big part, doesn't he, in book 15, which we've just... I've just finished and you've you've edited and I've I've re-edited. And um, And also in book 14, actually. Yes, yes. The the COVID book. And uh, I think the books where he hasn't appeared so much, he's he's appeared in all the books... Mm. Mm. Um, people have said, oh, where's Cathbad? But, you know, it's not always possible to get a druid in the plot, is it? Sometimes it can feel a little shoehorned, but you've managed it brilliantly in, you know, 
most of the books. You know, he's always he's always around, not always involved in the plot, he's but always he's always around. Always, a, he's always a presence. And he appears. I do. I tell you what. I do remember one thing that you said to me. Um, so it was at the end of the book, and I don't want to give you know it, it away in case anyone hasn't read it. Um, but there's a chase across the marshes, yep. and uh, Nelson and Cathbad end up in pursuit of Ruth, really. And um, Cathbad falls and almost sort of falls into the quicksand and Nelson saves him. And he says, oh, um, cheer up, Cathbad, you're not dead yet. And I said, as the authorial voice, um, it was the first time Nelson had called Cathbad by his assumed name. Up till then, he'd called him Michael Michael Malone. Malone. And you'd said... Well, you know, maybe take this line out because you're stepping out of point of view. Mm. And I didn't take it out, but I always wonder whether I should have. Well, probably in the long run doesn't matter. It probably doesn't matter, but I I think that's a real great editor's point because you noticed the point where I was stepping out of point of view. Point of view. I mean, in fact, you do that occasionally very, very subtly. And it's something as an editor that I always try. uh, It's something I find quite difficult when authors kind of step back like God. Yes, yes. Look the at old that, omniscient, the narrator, omniscient yes. narrator. But actually you you do it very in a very minor way and I think you now do it in a way that completely works. Oh, thank you. Moving Sometimes moving from chapter to chapter when there's maybe some link between the two yes. chapters that you point out what that link is. Yes, and there's um, often a sort of overhead, isn't there, at the beginning yeah. and then you zoom down. Exactly. That's exactly. the theory, anyhow. So, um, yeah, it was... What what are the things as an editor that that make you think, oh, I should check? I don't know that you watch out for and think, oh, I should. Well, I mean, we have you and I have sometimes missed out on things like <laughs> uh, it's often something that can be not necessarily in these books actually, but in the Brighton series that can be set fifties, sixties, seventies. Is that danger of anachronism? Yes, yes. Um, so I'm always trying to be because the Ruth books are very much. Contemporary and set in you know real time, um, just to make sure that something that's said or something that happened fits with that period, or that the language is right. Or I think, I mean, do you remember in this latest book? It's the wrong well, Beatles that, song, isn't it? It's the wrong Beatles song, which I picked up. But also, you talk about you talked about feet. Veganism, oh. but in the backstory, yes, which yes, had been yes. set twenty years earlier, the backstory, and now you know, veganism is 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 sort of every, is everywhere, yes, and seems not strange to us at all. But I don't think there were that many vegans around. All students weren't vegans, yes. for example. Yes, I think so I've made, made them vegetarian. vegetarian. Yes, yes. So it's sort of things. It's things like that, sort of anachronistic. Things. Yes, um, yeah. and it's so easy to do, isn't mm. it? You know, and and just little little sort of touches. I I did an event in Isha the other night, and um, somebody said, have, "Have you ever set a book in Isha? Have you ever mentioned Isha in your book?" So I said, "Oh no, do you think I? Do you know I haven't?" And afterwards, somebody came up and said, "Doesn't Edgar's mother live in Isha?" <laughs> and I said, "Oh yeah." So totally forgotten poor Odisha. So you know, even you know, it's been wonderful for me, as I said, to have had the same editor for all the books. So between us, we do know them quite well, we don't do we? We do know the characters extremely well, and of course, I think particularly, well, in fact, with your with your Brighton series as well, you. Um, are partic- particularly with this series, and there's a real soap opera quality to it, element to it, because you are following the stories and the lives of a series of characters, and there have been a lot of changes through the books. Yes, yes. Characters like 
Clough, Clough leaving, Dave Clough, who's a wonderful character, <laughs> who's uh, reports to, he was, a, he was a DS and he reports to, to Nelson, but then is promoted and becomes a DI and leaves. But you found clever. He doesn't go too far, so luckily you've managed to bring him yeah. back in. Yes, another one I have to but keep bringing in. You have, yes. have to keep bringing in because we like him. We don't want to lose him. And, and you know, the, character, the rivalries, rivalries between the members of the police force um you know back at the uh, you know back at the police station all of that and people getting together and people growing up and so it's it's and obviously the developing relationship between Ruth and Nelson um all of those things people keep i think come back to the stories for lots of different reasons i mean the norfolk setting of the ruth gallery books is absolutely fantastic and i think you we started to sort of build your fan base from from Norfolk because there were so many, you know, local people who who clearly loved the books and loved the fact they were set in North Norfolk and started and to come to your launches. That's so lovely, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I because I did think at first, you know, I have never lived in Norfolk, although my my aunt, my grandmother was from there, my aunt lived there, so I spent quite a lot of time there as a child, but. Um, I was really touched that people in Norfolk have liked the book so much, you know, because... So, and, and just... That, and that, yeah, and Gerald's was... Oh, know, and the Gerald's... Bookshop, the Gerald's bookshop in, in Norwich has just always been your champions from the word from They've the word been go. amazing. And we always try and launch each new book there. there. And we'll be launching the last remains yeah. there next February, February 2023. But so. I think what hooks people into the books is this lovely, this great Norfolk setting... Um, but also just, you know, the plots, which are always good and twisty and wonderful. And we'll talk to you about plots in a minute. Yes. But, um, but I think people love those characters and they just want to come back. Like you want to listen to the archers and find out what's going to happen yes, I to love... those people. And I think people are very hooked on the on the characters too. And in, and in, also in your other series, you're, you're great at characters. Oh, thank you. Gosh, this is very good for my ego. But I, <laughs> just thinking but, about the crossing places. Mm. So I I think, I can't remember, but I think it might just have been that a, a one-book deal or something, or, or maybe two, no, do you I remember? we did a two-book deal. So it was Crossing Places and the Janus Stone. And the Janus Stone, exactly. And um, did you think then that it might be such a long series? I didn't. I hoped it would be a series. I suppose we were looking ahead to half a dozen books at that point. Yes. I think originally you maybe had ten in your mind. Um, but I think we never thought we would get to 15. And and it's such a thing, isn't it? Because so many authors want to write a long series, and I, I kind of always knew, I suppose, that, Ruth and Nelson would have like a long story, yeah. but would I get the chance to, to to write it? And, you know, I've got to say, you know, you, particularly Jane and Quercus, have, have really stuck by me because it wasn't a bestseller, was it, The Crossing Places? It wasn't a bestseller, but I was actually also looking the other day back through, I mean, it wasn't a bestseller instantly. Um, it took time, but I was looking back through f- some letters from some feedback from the reps. Oh, really? Um, who go out, obviously, around the country and sell the books. For the reactions they were getting from the bookshops to the first book, not so much in hardback, where, the, you know, the first sale was fairly modest in hardback, but the paperback, and how people were responding to it, particularly lo- particularly in East Anglia, but how people were responding to it. And I think there's something we sort of knew very early on that if we... If we kept sort of at it and supported the books and you and everything that you were doing, um, 
there would there would be bestsellers. We could see people really, really getting into the books. Oh, that's so nice here because the reps are really important, aren't they? They're very important. They, absolutely. And before you were in supermarkets and that kind of thing, it was very much from the ground up talking to bookshops. And then you were brilliant and did an, a lot of. Library talks, visiting bookshops, even when sometimes be quite a small crowd. Yes, no, absolutely. I remember, I think you said to me, Jane, it's lighting small fires. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so I did, yeah. I, I, when anyone asked me, and I, I'm still, you know, really love going to libraries and bookshops. And it was kind of those independent bookshops as well, wasn't it? People like Gerald's and Toppings yep. and Ely, yes. um, Stenning Bookshops in Sussex, who, who sort of early on, I think the places where people really know their clientele and they'd say to them, you know, oh, you know, you, you like Anne Cleves, you, you might like, you know, who's going to be a guest on here? If you like Anne Cleves, you might like Ellie mm, Griffiths. And mm, it's that slow mm. thing, isn't it? And then you go and talk to some people. And yeah, I mean, I have talked to tiny audiences. I don't mind. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, even if even if there are six people there, they all buy a book or yes. they all recommend yeah. it. It all adds up, doesn't it? It all adds up. And it's, that's how you really build a fan base from the ground up. And then it's really lovely when people... Uh, discover discover you and then find actually you know they discover you at a slightly later stage and then find that there are all these other lovely books to read and they go back to the beginning and read it and sort of read everything because um, I love that. I mean, we're both readers, obviously, as well as, you know, and I love that. I remember when I discovered Phil Rickman and thought, just did an event with him in in, um, in Hay and realised he'd written so many books and it's just such a thrill, isn't it? Think, oh, I can read all of those. That's yeah, great. Like, no, go back and read all of them. And in fact, we've, we've just, um, let's just mention, you know, our special edition of The Crossing. Oh, Crisis yes, let's mention because, that. Because um, we've just done a very a very beautiful special edition of The Crossing Places, which contains a story that is unique to The Crossing Places, which is actually about Cathbad. Um, and it's a very beautiful book with gorgeous sprayed edges. It's way in my ambition, Jane, to have sprayed <laughs> edges. edges. You know those uh, for anyone who doesn't know. Sometimes they're called spridges, which is a great mm. name and it's just when when the, the edges of the book are coloured. Coloured, yeah. Um, but of course it's quite expensive to do that. Um, it's a very, very pretty book. And it's, so it's, it's sort of... Celebratory. It's lovely. It's a special edition, so it's sort of it's, it's a kind of sort of creamy white colour, and, and it's got a red and black illustration of a cottage, mm. and the the edges are red. And the edges are red. It's beautiful. And it's, and it's yeah, and it looks it looks extremely cosy. Do you want to talk about cosy crime and how cosy you think you are? Because you are oh, sort of okay. you are sort. It's it's weird how the whole cosy thing has yes. exploded. I never particularly thought of you as a cosy crime writer because. There's always death and murder, and the books can be quite dark and scary. Um, but you know what? It's partly sort of why is cozy crime has cozy crime suddenly become so hugely popular. But do you see yourself as a cozy? I see you as more as a kind of in between. I don't really see myself as cozy, and it's a funny old thing, isn't it? Cozy crime because it is an oxymoron, really. But yeah. and and I think somebody says that in the the. The book fifteen, the Ruth that I've just somebody talks about cozy crime in that way, um, but of course I don't have lots of blood and gore in my books. Uh, I don't really like reading about sort of violence, you know. Um, so the murders happen off stage. Yeah, and 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 gratuitous sort of violence and blood. So I'm not going to write it, but I never forget that murder is violent. Mm. And I think yeah. I think I do, you know. And I think the best kind of cozy writers, if you like, I do take death really seriously you know whether it's uh 
a body like in, in the crossing places you have you have a modern day case but you also have the discovery of, of a body that's been in, in the ground for 2,000 years an Iron Age body and I take that death seriously you know I take um take any any death I remember once being asked on a panel a bit of a spooky question um have you ever seen a dead body and uh, people were talking about maybe car crashes and things like that and I said yes I said I've seen Lindau man in 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 the British Museum yes. because he definitely met an untimely end I think he was throttled poisoned mm. stabbed mm. you know so I do take death seriously and I think sometimes the books are quite dark in a way because they, they, they look at sort of myth and legend and the dark parts of the human heart but I guess the cosy, do you think the cosy comes from the characters and the group of characters and the, the cozy, warmth there? I think the cosy comes from the group of characters. But I, but I, but I also, so yeah, I agree with that. But I also think that, I was trying to interpret this the other day in my own mind, how cosy or not. And I was thinking your books are cosy to some extent, but they're also real. Yeah, good. And yes. there's an element of cosy crime in which the sleuths are total amateurs who somehow keep falling across crimes, which I find quite hard to take. Um, but with you, we have A, a policeman, um, a detective, and B, a forensic archaeologist um, who has a real professional role in the story. And so, to some extent, that takes them slightly away from cosy and makes them pure mystery. Yes, like. it's an interesting it's thing. Not like country house murder. No, the amateur and the, sort of yeah. the whole golden age the of Ms. crime is, yeah. is often seen as the age of the amateur, isn't mm. it? The amateur detective comes yeah. in. And my friend Leslie Thompson is also going to be a guest on this podcast. Uh, she has a really good definition of cosy because she says she thinks cosy is how you feel when you read it. Yes. So yeah. actually, you know, sometimes you can read something quite dark mm, mm. Or, or something like The Moonstone or something that, that has, or, or The Woman in White. Yes. But there's a cosy feeling. So I wonder if it's, you know, to do with the... Uh, the feeling of a sort of a story that's well-rounded and has a beginning, middle and an end. Yeah, sort of... I think at the moment, you know, we've been living in uncertain times for quite a while, I think. And then obviously through the pandemic, I think people turned to cosy crime. It was very, very reassuring. It's a reassuring world sometimes, isn't it? It's a reassuring it? world. And, and, you know, the books usually end with the crime being solved. Yes, a resolution. A resolution, yes. exactly. Yeah, that is so what we're... That's really, really important. Yeah. So talking yeah. of beginning, middle and ends, mm. sort of <laughs> as my editor, um, I think I've... So if, looking back at The Crossing Places, um, th there, is a, there is a murder there and there are sort of loose ends and... and um, not loose ends, uh, red herrings and, you know, that it's, it is plotted. But I think my plots have got more complicated. Would you say that? And how, what, what are the things that you would help an author with in terms of plotting? Because you've certainly helped me. <laughs> they have been, they have got more complicated, and I think you're prepared to take risks. Sometimes I might pull you up and say, I'm not sure I'm completely convinced by that. Or perhaps you need to, this word seed, you need to seed yes. that character. I remember in the first book, because this is something I'm now watching out for, in the first book there was a criticism. I can't remember by whom or whether it was in a review or something that they guessed who the baddie was yes. pretty early on. Yes. And I think you've worked really hard to disguise that and to make the revelation of who done it more of a more of a surprise. 
I have I have worked on that, and actually, I think of something that um, uh, another terrific Kirkus author is Isabel Gray, um, who also writes as VB Gray, and she used to write for Midsummer Murders, and she said to me at the end of Midsummer Murders, there have to be four characters still standing, all of whom could have done it. Yes. And I have taken that on heart because I don't think that happens in The Crossing Places. That's but right. now I've tried to have at least four people who there's, could have done it. Exactly. There's, there's always a selection. So, you know, the denouement always has a wonderful element of surprise. You do quite often put put Ruth through it. <laughs> yes. I mean, she gets into she gets into an awful scrape and you think, no. Ruth, don't go there. <laughs> don't go down that dark don't go alleyway. Down that dark alleyway, it's going to end badly. So, but obviously she always comes out, she survives, etc., etc. But um, do you sometimes feel you're being a little cruel to her with what you're putting her through? Sometimes I do. And of course, also I don't want to have Ruth rescued in all the books. Mm. Um, and so I have tried quite hard to either have her rescue herself. Yes. Or and there have been occasions where she's rescued Nelson. Yes. Which indeed. I quite I quite enjoy those moments. Yeah. And yeah. um so so Nelson I think it is even in the first book he's trying to come to her aid, but actually she has already saved she's herself. Already saved herself. Really. But yes, I do feel a bit um of course Jeopardy in books comes from putting characters people love in danger, doesn't yes, it? Indeed. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, exactly. you know yeah. Your heart's in your mouth. You have, and I've, I'm afraid I've done it with Ruth. I've done it with Ruth's daughter Kate. I've yes. done it with Cathbad. Cathbad and Nelson. Yes, and Nelson. And I mean, there's a, there's a sort of uh, almost subliminal link, isn't there, between Cathbad and Nelson? Could not be two more different people. No, but there is a connection between them. Yes, um, and in fact, Nelson is much more intuitive in the way that Cathbad's intuitive, then you might think when you first encounter him that somehow, sometimes, he will know when Cathbad is in danger and vice, and vice versa because they kind of saved each other in some way. They of... do, and they have this kind of... Well, Cathbad would definitely say they have a psychic link. A psychic um, link, exactly. And I've tried to sort of show that, that Nelson is, as you said, exactly more intuitive than he lets on. Yes. But Cathbad's actually quite... And a couple of times, Nelson said, Cathbad would actually have made a good detective. So he's actually a bit more logical than than he comes across and um, is quite, you know, he he has the right sort of detective instincts in a way. So I really enjoyed writing that relationship, which I wasn't sure was going to exist in the first book, really. Um, Is that true of almost all the relationships? I mean, did you... We mustn't, for people who haven't read the books, give too much away, but the people who get together um and you know which couple I'm yeah yes 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 I know um, what you mean yes it's it just sort of really that there are wonderful surprises in that when you find that characters have sort of when you find that characters have so much more to the character than you first thought if you like Yes. Well, I really didn't know. I really didn't know when I I introduced the cast of characters in that first book. And I think Clough and Judy have very little to do in the first book. So I I had really didn't know what was going to happen with them. So in some ways, that has been fun for me. And I think one of the reasons why the series has gone on so long is it still is fun for me and I hope for you. Absolutely. And I do treasure the moments. There aren't that many of them, but there are a couple of moments where you said uh, there's been a tear in your eye. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. won't say when they were, but I feel like, ching, gosh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I made... Tear in my eye, really. Yes. And, I, and I've, had some, I've had some real oh-no moments, too. Oh, good. 
Um, I think in Dying Fall, particularly. Yes. And, yeah, no, I mean, there are always wonderful moments of... of, of, of Laughter of tears. Of That's so nice when, you know, because you've read all the books and you read, I hate to say this, but you're not just my editor. So you read lots of books. And, uh, yeah, you so my face. I, oh, thank you. Thank you. I've got that. I've got that in, in record it on record. Um, but, you know, to, 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 if, I can, if I can do that with you, James, I'm so happy. Do you think it's important? I don't think we've got that much longer, but do you think mm. it's important that um, the reader should guess um, by the end or should there be a shock on the last page? Do you have any views on that? Um, I I don't know. I think some people want to guess yes. and some people don't. Because you sometimes say so you don't want to guess. I don't want to guess. I mean, I want, I want to be surprised. So I don't work too hard at trying to... I try and be average reader, in fact, when I'm <laughs> reading, you know, like how would uh, another reader react to this? But I know some people are really, really good at working it out. And others are less good and, like me, want to be surprised. Um, I think in most of your novels, I... Well, as you say, you've all, you've always kept enough suspects on stage. Not like Agatha Christie, where there are always eight, and it's never one of those that did it. <laughs> yes, but, you know, I've you gathered you all together. together. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, Marple will explain. Um, but because you keep a number of characters in play, there's always an element of surprise when you find out who did it at the end? I think that's really, I think that's really, really clever. Oh, I hope so. Thank um, you. Yes, I do like to, you know, and I also like to play fair, you know, because Agatha Christie always played fair, didn't she? So, yes, there are. Last night I did an event and we were asked about prologues. And do, do you like or dislike prologues? Do you I not care? About prologues? I think it depends on the it depends on the book, but I I quite like prologues. Yes, you generally do a little prologue. Um, I think sometimes it just you just sort of need to show the reader that there is going to be a dramatic event at some yes, point. Yes, yes. And it kind of gets you into the story. So, yeah, I quite I like a little bit of a prologue. And I think you said once that often some the first lines of a book maybe as an editor you there might be something that you change in the first lines and the last lines have i yeah, remembered that right yes i've sometimes changed the last line haven't i you have actually in fact, yes i think i suggested changing the last line of when you just finished the last you remains. did and i did what and you, you did. said <laughs> <laughs> i just think you tweaked you... it but i am trying to remember was did we put the prologue was the prologue in there in the first book in the crossing places when you first delivered it or did i suggest putting the prologue in it was there and it yeah. was one of those prologues that comes from the middle of the book yes. so i'd put it there and i had actually had it repeated exactly, exactly. when it comes word for word, chronologically it comes and i think chronologically, you made exactly. the very good suggestion of just having it begin mm. uh, but not have the whole two pages mm. again yeah. sort of in the middle so but it sort of shows when you get to Where that you're bit, going to. Exactly. Um, but I think I think you always say to me, Jane, that um, and your editorial notes are always brilliant. Um, you know, you're quite sparing with the moments where you say that's lovely. I love that, mm -hmm. but I always like it when you do say that. Or oh, that made me laugh. I always like that when you say that. But you usually say that I do ninety percent of what you suggest. Yes, you do, and that's <laughs> quite right. You do because I mean, it's your book ultimately. It's it's your book. Um, I mean, one thing we do always do actually is make them longer. Yes, because you are, you are a spare writer. I am, and you're very, um, you're naturally a pacey writer, and you're quite right to be. And sometimes you leave 
a little bit too much for the reader to guess. And you want to, you introduce character, and one wants to know just just a quick sketch of them, or where they might have featured in the pre- previous book. Or so, I generally always make you add about between us, we add about five thousand words. Yes. And that's that's um, so, and I really enjoy that bit because usually I hand in the book at seventy five thousand words, and you say perhaps here, perhaps there, mm. you could add a bit more. And I always think, of course I could. That's so obvious. Mm. And and when I do, it always makes it better. So you know that that's a wonderful thing about being edited, Jane. So <laughs> thank you so much for being my first well, guest. I'm honoured to be your first oh. guest, and it's been really lovely chatting to you, Domenica. It's been an honour to be your author. Thank you. Pleasure. Lots more books to come, I hope. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for listening to The Plot Thickens this week. And a huge thank you to Jane. I really loved our conversation. In the next episode, I'll be talking to award-winning crime writer Anne Cleave, so don't forget to subscribe. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or a review. Or better yet, tell a friend about it. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Ellie Griffiths. The 15th and final book, for now, in the Dr Ruth Galloway series is called The Last Remains and it's out on the 2nd of February 2023. You can pre-order it now from all major retailers. <laughs>